That is quite an interesting passage that was just read, right? How many different ideas, different theories, or, uh, or thoughts, or questions do we have about, about this concept, about the return of Jesus? And sometimes uh, you never really know who you're going to run into and have a conversation. You never really know who you're going to run into that's going to have an opinion about this, right? So, so just recently, I was, I was at an airport. I was flying back to Nebraska. I had a, a very long layover, and, and so I was kind of doing a bunch of random things, doing some work on my laptop, riding the escalators, as you do. Uh, and, and, and at one point, I, I overheard a conversation happening. Uh, two guys uh, were talking. They were talking about this very subject, about the return of Jesus. And so me, being my normal, extremely introverted self, stepped out in faith and, and pretended to be an extrovert and talked to two random guys that I had never seen before about a topic as uncomfortable as, as this, as uncomfortable and as unknown as the return of Christ. And so as we're talking, to make matters more interesting, one guy was a Jehovah's Witness. Another guy, uh, the, the other guy, he, wa- he attended a mega church in California. And then there's little old Justice Coppinger from, from a small town in Nebraska that attended a church of Christ. So what a very vast array of ideas, interpretations of, of Scripture, right? And so as we're talking, they eventually, they, they, they talked and then they, they looked at me and they thought, well, uh, you know, what, what, what do you think? And so me being uh, the, the incredibly wise young person I am and the incredibly theologically deep thinker that I am said, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And it, it seems there's all these passages in Scripture that talk about the return of Jesus. And, 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 and people have so many different ideas, so many theories. It seems there are so many ideas and yet only one unknown answer. So what does that mean for us, how should we live based off of a time, a season, an instance that we don't know? For 2,000 years, the church has been thinking over possibility after possibility as to how the return of Jesus will occur and when it will occur. And even outside the church, people have been coming up with different ideas and trying to nail down a date, right? How many, how many of you guys remember when the world was supposed to end in 2012? Right? They even made, they even made a film about it. And, and people are obsessed with this idea of when the world will end, how it's going to happen, and if we'll be ready for if it happens. I'm sure all of us have asked these questions in one way or another. And if you're anything like me, you absolutely hate unknowns. And so I remember times when, when I was growing up, I would, I would supposed to be sleeping, but I'd lie in my bed wide awake at night with all these questions about, about what, what that's like, what the, the concept of eternity. I, I would ask questions and, and all these questions would, I would wrestle with them in my mind. They'd be running in my mind. I couldn't focus because I was afraid of something that I couldn't understand. I was afraid of something that was unknown. So I would ask questions like, is Jesus going to return tomorrow or is he going to return after my lifetime. Other questions like, what will happen during eternity? What, what will happen to all of us? What will happen to me? What will that experience be like? Other super important theological questions like, will I need to eat or sleep in heaven? Uh, and so needless to say, my eight-year-old self had a lot of unanswerable questions that I just simply wanted answers to. 
But simply based off of the fact that the time of Jesus' return is unknown, we can simply, we, we can easily be caught up, frozen, not knowing what to do with all the unknowns about this. And this is exactly what the Thessalonians are experiencing. And we see based off of the passages that we read this morning, it seems that there is a great struggling. They're struggling with understanding Jesus's return and what that means for them. So at this point in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is addressing the things that Timothy has recently reported back to him, right? He, Paul himself is not able to revisit the Thessalonians, so he sends Timothy. Timothy, Timothy goes, he, he, he scopes out the church, what's, what's happening, what's going well, what's not going well. He comes back, he reports to Paul. So Paul is at this point addressing those things that Timothy has reported back to him. And so as we saw last week, uh, as we, we talked about... Uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, um, the, one of the issues that uh, Paul needed to address was the idea of sexual immorality. And then one thing that he saw, that Timothy saw was doing well, was that they were loving one another really well. And so he encourages them to do that more. So, so everything we see at this point, everything that Paul has addressed this far in the letter has to do with subjects that the Thessalonians already know about. Things that they already have had the answer to. Things that Paul has already informed them about. And this is indicated by some of the language that he's used in previous subjects. So before he addresses uh, the idea of sexual immorality in chapter uh, 4, verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you. You already know what we told you about this. And so he's simply reminding them of that fact. Or when he's talking in chapter 4, verse 9, talking about their love for one another. He says, About your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God. You already know this thing. And so up until this point, Paul has addressed things that the Thessalonians have seemingly already been told, things that they already know. Except now, Paul is talking about a completely new question that the Thessalonians have had, something new that they're struggling with. And it's clear that this is an issue that Paul didn't necessarily address specifically while he was there in, in Thessalonica. And this is indicated by verse 13, that, that what he is sharing with them is new information, and, and he shares it in order to, to help their understanding. And he, it's clear by, by the way he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. We, we want you to have a firm grasp in this. You, you, are, you seem to be uninformed. We don't want you to be uninformed and to have a misunderstanding of this. And so here, here is what, and so, so he goes on, goes on to explain about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So at this point, Paul is stepping into uncharted territory. So what is it specifically that Paul is needing to address here? Paul is addressing an issue regarding eschatology. Everyone say eschatology. That's not a word you get to use every day, right? So eschatology is the study of the last days. Trying to understand the, la the last days, what that means, what scripture says about the last days. And so as we see from verse 13, the Thessalonians seem to be in a deep grievance because many of the members of the church have passed away. 
And because of this, they're unsure that those that have passed away will be able to receive salvation or will in some form or fashion be at, at a disadvantage for when Christ returns. And the Thessalonians themselves are surrounded by these pagan cults, these mystery religions. These religions and and cults and traditions that have all these different ideas about what the end times will be like, what their afterlife is like, what happens when you die. Positive, negative ideas. So many different ideas. And so when we look at this, we we do see that within the pagan context, one element does remain the same. And that is the fear of death and the fear of what is going to occur after death if they believe in some sort of afterlife. And so with this in mind, the the Thessalonian church has grown up in a culture that has feared death. And so that has in some way influenced their their idea of Jesus's return. And so based off of these verses, we can tell that the Thessalonians are experiencing a lot of angst and stress based off of the unknowns of Christ's return and based off of certain fears and the influences from those around them. And so because of this, Paul answers with a comforting message for them. As we see in verse 14, he, he starts to dive, to dive into this. He says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So he's saying that because we believe in Jesus' resurrection, we also believe in the resurrection of all of humanity. And that, that no one will be disadvantaged as, as you fear. No, there, it's going to be something that is somehow experienced all together at the same time. Have you ever slept through something you needed or you wanted to be at? I had uh, an unfortunate an unfortunate experience with this, right? Because no one wants this to happen, but, but we're all kind of afraid that, oh, I hope I don't sleep through my alarm. I hope this doesn't happen. Well, I experienced this my freshman year of college, and it was finals week, my very first semester, my very first finals. So the first day of finals goes by. I'm doing good. I'm staying up late every night this week because I'm studying. I want to be well prepared for my tests. And so this one particular test, I was like, all right, I need to get this. I need to get a good grade on this test so I can keep my A in this class. So I stay, stay up late. I'm studying. And then as I'm going to bed that night, my phone battery drops below 5% to 4% to 3%. And so I'm like, okay, as I'm going to bed, I plug my phone in for the night because that had my alarm that was going to wake me up in the morning, right? Wake me up when I needed to be there. However, for some reason, something malfunctioned with my charger. And so my phone battery dropped three, two, one, and died. And so I didn't wake up when I, when I needed to. I slept through what, what I wanted to be at. And so an hour and a half goes by of a two-hour test. 30 minutes are left, and I wake up to the sound of my roommate entering the door of, of, our, of our dorm room. The door is slamming. I shoot up out of bed. I, I, I'm panicking. I, I, I scramble. I make, it to, I make it to the classroom. There's about 20 minutes left to take the test. No one is there, and I, I have to explain to my teacher what happened, and luckily I made it there in time to, to begin with. And so while I'm there, I have to take the test by myself, and luckily I did st- Uh, spend enough time studying to where uh, I was able to at least finish the test and it all worked out in the long run, but close call, right? (laughs) Close call. And so when we look at this story, this idea of missing out, sleeping through something 
We see that as Paul is talking about through verse, verse 14, he's saying, there is not going to be anyone disadvantaged in some way, but this is going to be an experience that is experienced by those who are alive, those who have passed. That, that right now, all, all Christians from all times have a connection. We have a connection with all the, liver, the, the believers that are currently living, but we also have a connection with all the believers that have passed. And this connection is only made possible through Jesus' sacrifice. And so he goes on in verse 17. Paul continues in verse 17. He says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Because we, we know that through Jesus' sacrifice, we get to experience the resurrection and eternal life together as one church, as the bride of Christ, and as God's children. How incredible is that? How comforting is that? And so after this, after informing them of this, Paul adds one important point in verse 18. He says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another that though there is hardship, though there is suffering, and there is loss in our present time right now, that one day there is hope in the salvation that is brought through Jesus Christ. And as Paul is saying this, he is in no way saying that we should not grieve, but he says that the way that we should grieve, as he said in, in verse 13, the way that we should grieve is not the same as those without hope grieve. And no one should, and, and he's not saying this to discount anyone's loss or anyone's grief or anyone's pain because Paul understands that this life is full of all of those things. Instead, what he is saying is that in spite of our pain, in spite of our grief and our suffering, we also have hope. That even though we experience pain, we also experience joy and hope at the same time. And so with this in mind, because we have faith in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and we have faith that we will get raised with him when he returns, how should that affect how we live today? What are we supposed to do with this information about Christ? What are we supposed to do with what we still don't know about Christ's return? And so this is what makes the following passage in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, so important. And so as he continues to talk about eschatology or the, or the last days, he shifts gears to talk about a subject that he, again, has already talked to the Thessalonians. And this is indicated in, verses, or in chapter 5, verse 1. And the way he says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. So there seems to be an upheaval of emotions and questions about this subject. However, as we see in the opening verse of this passage, that though Paul maybe didn't necessarily address one specific question that the Thessalonians had, he did address the idea of Jesus' return, that it was going to occur, and Jesus was going to return. And so it's something that they are aware of. And so with this, though they had some questions based on maybe something they haven't been taught, it seems that their concerns are seeping into what they already know. And so in this verse, Paul is first reminding them that it's important 
to not let what they do know influence what they don't know. Don't let unanswered questions make you fearful of how you should live today. Don't let things that cannot be answered make you question what you know is true. And so he continues in verse 2. And he says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so this, using this example of a thief that comes in the middle of the night, this is something that is completely unknown, and yet something that is able to be expected. Maybe something that is able to be anticipated. Of course, no one goes to bed at night and, and you know, is, is like, oh man, I forgot. It, <laughs> silly me. It's Tuesday. I forgot my house is going to be broken into tonight. I forgot I penciled that into my schedule for tonight. Nobody, nobody does this, right? Because a time that, the, the whole point of, of breaking into someone's house is because that is done at a time that is unknown, right? And so, and so then he's able to draw a contrast on this with verse Four. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. So though the Lord's return is going to come at an unknown time like a thief in the night, it's not going to surprise you. Why? Because you are not in darkness. When does a thief break into a house? Do they come up to your door in, in the middle of the day and, and knock on your door and say, uh, hello, good afternoon, how, how are you doing? Uh, I was just curious if, if I could break into your house real quick, if I could steal some of your valuables. This, does that, is this a good time, right? Of, of course not. This isn't how that works because they come in darkness. And so Paul is, is making it clear, drawing this distinction that if we are in darkness, we aren't able to recognize the idea of Christ's coming. We aren't conscious and focused on this idea. And this passage relates greatly to a teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. This is 39 and 40. Jesus says, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not let the house be broken into. Then he continues in, in verse 40. If you could go to the next verse there. He says, You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And so Jesus points out that we simply do not, though we do not know when the thief is going to break into the house, and yet he says that we have to be at a constant state of acting as if the thief could come at any moment. And so this is the same for as we wait for the return of Jesus. Though we do not know the specific day, we do not know the season or the year, we must live our lives in a way that allows us to maintain readiness. And so what, what does this look like? What does that mean? How do we apply this to our lives? And this is what Paul talks about. And he, he makes a distinction in this in the following verses in Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He continues in verses 5 through 6. He says, you are, you are children of light. You do not belong to the darkness. And then in 6 he says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. And so Paul differentiates three different ways that we can act in response to Jesus' return. We see them in verse 6. Asleep, awake, and sober. So first, 
talks about asleep. What, what, a person that is asleep, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to be asleep to, to, to the fact of Jesus' return? A person who is asleep is not conscious at all. Not conscious of Jesus at all. So being asleep means that we are not conscious to the work that Jesus is doing around us. And we are not working towards a future with Jesus. That's the first example. The second example, he says, awake. Be awake. However, being awake does not mean that we are living focused lives. Sometimes when we are awake, we can go through the motions. Other times, we are awake and aware of the return of Jesus, right? So that's kind of the idea. You're awake, you're aware of Jesus' return, whereas a person that's asleep is not aware that that is occurring. However, just because you're awake doesn't mean that you put forth conscious effort to acting out what Jesus would have you do, acting as if that is happening. And so he, he brings up a third point. He says, sober. You must be both awake and sober. Having a life of spiritual sobriety. Being intentional with your actions. It's not just about being conscious, but about being consciously focused on what Jesus would have us do. So waiting for Jesus is not a passive state. Waiting for Jesus is not going up to the mountaintop and not, not doing anything and simply looking toward the clouds and saying like, all right, Jesus, any, any day now, I, I, I'm ready, I'm waiting. But waiting for Jesus, when we wait, we are actively waiting. We are pursuing what his work for us is. We are watching over our house so that we are ready when the thief comes. And most of all, when we're doing this, we're excited. We are excited and in anticipation for Jesus's return. And so that what makes Paul's next point in verses 9 through 10 so incredibly important. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Our salvation rather than wrath, is the result of God's goodness and Jesus' sacrifice. Rather than anything that we do, he points out that it is because of Jesus. It is through Jesus our Lord. And so when he, he makes an important distinction to say that when we were created by God, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. When we were created by God, God looked at us and created us and said, I want to spend the rest of eternity, I want to spend the rest of that with you. I don't want to appoint you toward anything except for salvation. And so then Paul repeats the same phrase that he used in the, in the previous verse uh, in the previous passage, he, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Encourage one another. So though we do not know when, when the return is, our hope and faith is in the fact that Jesus will return triumphantly and ultimately defeat death and all evil. And though we experience pain and loss, we can be encouraged by the fact that those have passed away, those that have gone before us, we will be reunited with them again one day. 
And so with that, because we have faith in Jesus' return, our lives have to reflect that that is what we believe. Paul's call to action of comfort one another is not just a subtle idea, but an active command through which we can live our lives. When people watch me and watch my life, are they seeing a person who is living out and declaring that Jesus is returning and that Jesus has defeated death? When people are watching you and watching your life, do they see a life that is declaring the return of Jesus? And so as Paul encourages us to do this, we we can comfort one another through an uncomfortable time. We can comfort one another through the different things that we go through in life, through the discomforts, through the pain, through the loss. We can lift each other up because Christ has died for us and he has appointed us for salvation. And this is not to keep anyone from grieving, not to downplay anything that anyone is going through, but to help one another through all that life throws at us. To encourage one another to live as though we are declaring through our actions, through our speech, through our lives, that Jesus has defeated death and is returning. And we will one day be reunited with him and with those who have passed. And so as we encourage one another, we're to live in a way that declares that Jesus has defeated the grave and will one day bring us all together back into his presence. This is Paul's call to the Thessalonians, to comfort one another through this. This is Paul's call to us, to comfort one another through this. In, in just a moment, I'm going uh, to close us out in prayer. So I, at this time, uh, I want to, want to invite you, if, if you are in need of, of prayer this morning, if, if, you are, um, if you're going through a tough time, if, if you would like to take the next step in your relationship with Christ, you want to learn more, you want to know what that means, myself, Craig, our elders, will, will be in the back. We would love to get to discuss that with you and, and, and pray with you in this moment. Let's pray. God, we, we are so in awe with all, all that you do for us constantly. We thank you for the gift of your son and, and for through him, we get to experience salvation. That you, when you created us, you appointed us for salvation because you wanted to be with us so badly. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for how you sent your son as a sacrifice to do that for us. And so I pray that we can live in a way that declares that Jesus is returning, that we can live in a way that honors that sacrifice. We thank you so much uh, for, for this place, being able to gather together to worship this morning. I pray we can continue to do that wholeheartedly as, as we do that the rest of this morning. And we can encourage one another through all the discomforts, all the things that come through life, because we know that all comfort comes first through you, God. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.